0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ.
1: Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we pray give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to follow you. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us tonight for our midnight Eucharist service that celebrates in real time, as it were, the birth of Jesus Christ. And I, would assume that if you're here, it's likely because you know this service is distinctively different from our earlier Christmas Eve services. They're arranged differently. All the earlier services actually take the form of lessons and carols. It's a back and forth reading and then singing and then reading and then singing with more reading and more singing and more reading and more singing back and forth that displays the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know what first made Lessons and Carols famous? Maybe you do. It's a festival of nine Lessons and Carols by the Boys Choir at King's College in Cambridge. There's only 16 boys who are a part of that choir. As part of their education, they're all musically and chorally trained. If you've heard them, you know it's beautiful. The the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols was first performed at that school in 1918. It's a long time ago. And then, 10 years later, in 1928, it was first broadcast. A Christmas Eve tradition had begun, and little did they know that the broadcast would be seen worldwide by millions in our present day. In 2018, at their 100-year anniversary, the New York Times wrote an article about it, and they mentioned that there were over 370 million people who tuned in to listen to those 16 boys sing as Scripture was read, and then the boys would sing and Scripture was read. I'm curious, did, did any of you tune in earlier this morning to hear it? I see a single hand, maybe two, in the crowd. Maybe I should have expected that. You're not here because you like lessons and carols. You're here because you wanted to come to the Eucharist service. So perhaps that's why I'm not a night owl myself, but I do especially enjoy celebrating the Eucharist on Christmas Eve. Uh, If you've tuned into this, I want to mention something about it. You'll notice that the, the readings are the same every single year, but what's not the same necessarily are the carols. They're similar, but they're not always the same. However, the first one always is the same. It's once in David's royal city. And every year, the first verse begins with a solo from one of the 16 boys. Now, we would assume that the director would likely choose the most gifted chorister to sing the solo. That's not what happens. The director chooses the soloist minutes before the performance begins. Can you imagine being a prepubescent, pubescent pubescent teenage boy who has the finger pointed at him just a few minutes before the show starts. I can't imagine what that would be like. The boy who sings the opening solo literally finds out minutes before the performance begins. Can can you imagine if we treated our church services that way? If all the pastors met in the back of the narthex with, with Tim and we huddled around to divvy out duties and five minutes before we processed in, he just pointed at one of us and said, you're preaching. I would quit my job. <laughs> but that's what happens. It's a fascinating tradition, isn't it? What do you think it says? What do you think it communicates? What, what does it say about the, the chosen one? In that extraordinary moment, he's, he's both very special and yet exactly the same. He, he's both highly exalted and yet he's ordinary and common with all the other Boys. So, so what makes him the chosen one special, and perhaps why the tradition exists at all, the last minute selection, is that it shows while he may be special, he shares everything in common with those that he represents. In some ways, that's true of Jesus Christ. At Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnation that God took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory through his Son. And what a special child is born to us this day. Unlike any other, and therefore born in the most unique of ways, and yet we can't forget that the incarnation is filled with condescension. It's first and foremost about God coming down. And not just coming down, but coming down to us in this special child, his only begotten son. And yet there's something about the way Jesus came and the way that Jesus lived that tells us that he shares everything in common with those he intends to represent. He's the son of God, but he is also the son of man. We see this condescension, this commonness about him in this extraordinary night's events, don't we? I would like to mention it in three ways. First, the birth itself, then the messengers, and finally the message. So first, the birth. Uh, At the beginning of our narrative, if you look there, you'll see that Caesar calls for a census. It's likely to raise revenue through taxes, given the text tells us that all the world is heading back to their hometowns to be registered. It's, It's Caesar's way of eliminating tax evasion. Okay, and this is the Caesar who was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. The grandnephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was sometimes acknowledged with an epigraph and it would read, the son of God, emperor of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Sounds a lot like Maui from Moana. If you've seen that. And it's this Caesar's edict the edict of this earthly king that sends Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary to the city of God's king, the city of David. And it is noted here that Joseph, and therefore this unborn child, comes from the lineage of David, and with it that recalls the promise inherent with the throne of David. It's the promise that God's king would be ruler of the land and the sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. And so two kingdoms are placed in conflict with each other immediately. Two ways of viewing the world and all those who are in it. And yet at the same time, though that's the backdrop to this birth narrative, it's not the most repeated theme in the passage. The most repeated theme in all of Luke 2 is not Jesus's kingship. The most repeated theme in Luke 2 is that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Three times that phrase is mentioned, once in each part of the narrative. Okay, it's like a refrain here with Mary and Joseph in verse 7, but then again by the angel later in verse 12, and then with the shepherds in verse 16. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. It's a repetition not of his imperial greatness, but of his commonness. There's a paradox embedded in the birth narrative that though Jesus is God's promised king, he's the true Caesar. He was not dressed in royal raiment. He was dressed in swaddling cloths. He was not placed on a majestic throne. He was placed in a feeding trough. And he came not in the midst of the day with a grand pronouncement, but in the obscurity and solitude and the darkness of night. Why? Why? Our Old Testament reading tells us, it says the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone." And in and through Jesus, God really is coming down to man. To become like mankind, that mankind might become like him. He condescends to us. The extraordinary is made ordinary, that the ordinary might be made extraordinary. We see this, too, through the messengers that God chooses. I I think you could argue, actually, that the main characters of Luke 2 are not necessarily Mary and Joseph. It's the shepherds. They occupy the majority of the verses of Luke 2, and divine visitation does come to them. They become the first recipients of the messianic secret, this thing that only Mary and Joseph knew. And perhaps that's why, when the shepherds show up, Mary and Joseph know that this must be true if these shepherds know this. The shepherds seek and they discover the Christ child in Bethlehem, and they also become his first and primary witnesses right after that. They are a terrible choice to be the primary messengers and witnesses of the arrival of the Son of God. Okay, there's nothing spectacular. There's nothing particularly sexy about being a shepherd. Okay, others generally actually gave no credence to their claims. They were on the margins. They were mostly viewed as untrustworthy. Their word wouldn't be recognized in a court of law. It wouldn't hold up. It's not sam- substantive. It's not binding. They were ordinary workers. And they often actually had to work as day workers because their original job wouldn't provide enough for their families which put them in the peasant class not a place of power and so as part of the peasant class and located located toward the bottom of the scale of power and privilege in society imagine that God chooses them as his first and his primary messengers and witnesses to the birth of his son they're too common they're far too ordinary But that's the point. It's exactly the point. In and through Jesus, God is coming down to man. His good news comes to the shepherds first, not the rulers. The lowly are those who are lifted up in his kingdom, and God will choose the least to do the greatest. That's why Paul says later on, God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are esteemed and lifted up. And Luke's gospel is full of this theme too. It's not just here in the birth narrative. He loves to highlight God's choice of, his love for, and his use of the outcasts and the unlikely. He says it over and over and over again. Those who are low have great hope because God is a God who condescends, who comes down to man to become like them that they might become like him. And this is shown not only through the the birth itself, and not only through the messengers, but finally through the message. If you look, starting in verse 10, this is the angelic birth announcement of Jesus. And the angels said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, besides the nature of this this Christ child being displayed, that he is the Savior, who is Messiah, who is King. He's the Savior, Messiah, King. There's something else really peculiar about this birth announcement. Did you notice? I, I don't know if you've seen a birth announcement Uh, recently, but they typically share some similar components. Okay. At first, you try to find the cutest and cleanest post-birth picture you can find of the newborn baby. And if this newborn baby has older siblings, you try to find a picture of clean newborn baby being held and kissed by older siblings. That's the ideal. So that's, that's the first thing, okay? The second thing is you reveal the baby's full name. It's news, but not just the full name. Along with it, uh, whether it's a boy or girl, the date of the birth, their weight, their length, the place of birth, it essentially becomes the child's first resume. But whether at the beginning or end, this is what's peculiar. A normal birth announcement, it, it somehow mentions this, born to with the parents' names. Why? Because it's unbelievably important to know to whom this child belongs. That's not what we receive here in this birth announcement. There's there's no mention of Joseph and Mary. Instead, the announcement says, born this day to you. Not born this day to Mary and Joseph. Born this day to you. As if this child ultimately belongs to these shepherds. And by connection with them to us. That, that Jesus' great appearing is intended to be as much a gift to us as it was to Mary and Joseph. The text says that this good news of great joy really is for all people. And you know what? The more we understand the, the to you of this Christ child and his coming, the more we will find God really has come down to me. A pastor and theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, says this about the passage. He says, the difference between understanding Christmas and rejoicing in it, and on the other hand, allowing it to pass you by, lies in the phrase, born this day to you. His birth announcement is made to you. That you might know this salvation is to you. And this child is God's inexpressible gift sent to be given to you. To you. And when that to you becomes to me, born this day to me, born this day to me, that's when the reality of Christmas will overwhelm you in your present circumstances, whatever they may be. Born to you this day is Jesus who is the Christ. He and his reign are intended to be known on that personal of a level, on a me level. Whoever you might be. As our New Testament reading says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all mankind. God intends to gift himself to the ordinary and even lower than that, the sinful and the lost. Luke himself will say time and time again throughout his gospel, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost, the poor, the lowly. And this is really good news. It's really great news for you because whatever kind of you that you are, he condescends to come to you. Your station in life, he was born unto you. To become what you are, that you might become what he is. And through Jesus, God really is coming down to you. And so on this Christmas Eve and, and for this particular service that we have, we find it quite appropriate as we celebrate the moment of his birth to celebrate the feast of his death. It was also intended for you. And we find this to be true, that the manner of his death was just as the manner of his birth. It's filled with willful condescension. Please don't hear me wrong. It was an extraordinary death just as it was an extraordinary birth. And at the same time, it was so unspeakably common, even base. He was sharing everything in common with those he died to represent. It says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we respond appropriately at his birth to feast on his death. Who are we really but shepherds ourselves anyways? It's a fascinating reality when you come to grips with it. We're unworthy but chosen messengers, and we're called to follow the pattern of his condescension. Perhaps growing in our love, our concern, our care for those that the world might not even look at, might forget, potentially even abuse. God exalts those who are humble. And he humbles those who are exalted. I invite you on the eve of his birth. Let him be born unto you. And then follow his path. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we come thankful in our hearts that you came down to us. So that we might rise up to where you are. We pray in this holy night that we would consider the to you of the good news and that we might rejoice just as the shepherds. Lead us now to your table and let us rejoice even now in Christ's name.
0: Amen.